they're still standing, all right? Well, let's get on with it. We had a few questions come in last week. Let me hit them right off the bat. We were looking at 1 Thessalonians, and these are some of the responses and, and thoughts that came in. One person asked this, what year was Christianity created? Did Jesus and the disciples have to reteach the religion into the Catholic religion because they were spreading the Jewish religion? And I looked at this, and I went, oh my gosh, where do I even begin? Because I am so glad you asked the question, but I fear there may be several layers of mis, uh, misconception going on. So, what year was Christianity created? It depends on how you look at it. It's kind of difficult to answer. I mean, at one sense, I could say this. Well, from the time Jesus was born and his mother Mary started pondering up all these things about him in her heart, you could say she was the first follower. Or you could say when Jesus started his public ministry and started calling disciples, maybe it started then. Certainly, you have to say it's no later than 50 days after Easter when the Holy Spirit comes down on those apostles at Jerusalem. They start speaking in tongues, and it's this day called Pentecost when the church just explodes. But, you know, it's kind of like me asking the same question to you. When were you created? Is it the day you were born... Or is it that unpleasant moment none of us want to think about when your mom and dad were getting it on? <laughs> because Christianity really is nothing more than the fulfillment of an ancient faith and belief that goes back to Adam and Eve. So at one level you could say Christianity was created in the beginning, but maybe this is a better way of putting it. If Judaism is Star Wars... Christianity is Return of the Jedi, all right? It is a seamless story, but it still has to come in a certain order. Now, when they asked, did Jesus and the disciples have to reteach the religion into the Catholic religion, if you're using Catholic with a lowercase c in much the way the Greek New Testament will use the term, meaning universal church, then, then I'm okay with it, but don't mistake the Roman Catholic faith today as something that was in existence from the time of Peter on, okay? What the apostles did instead is they went around as Jews talking about the fulfillment or return of the Jedi of the Star Wars faith that they had. Are you with me? If that makes like completely no sense, well, text in. There's the number. All right, this was an interesting one. If God knew we were going to fail, why does he get so mad? Because just because God knows something doesn't foreordain and predestine you to do it. Does that make sense? I know that my wife and kids are going to die someday, barring the swift return of Christ. That doesn't take the emotional quotient out of it for me because it's still something that's not supposed to be, that I don't want to have happen, and that in selfishness I pray to God that happens to me first. Does that make sense? And it's the same with God. He knows you're going to fail, but he doesn't want you to, and you don't have to. That's why he still gets so upset. Now, a little bit more pointed to the passages we looked at. Someone asked, so what happened to Jason for having Paul stay at his house? Um, well, he got arrested. He got dragged off to the government officials. He had to postpone, and they let him go. And given the tone of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, 
given the ideas of what happened there in light of what happened in Acts 17 where this, this episode comes up, he probably took it on the chin the rest of his life living in that town. Probably took it on the chin for being a believer and, and had to deal with persecution and suffering from the time that happened and evermore thereafter. Now finally, in 1 Thessalonians, someone asked, is Paul saying we don't go straight to heaven when we die? If you were with us last week, I tried to make the big point that the hope that Thessalonians puts out there is not dying and going to heaven, but it's Christ's second coming and the resurrection of the dead that comes with it. And so out of this, I think, came this fear, and ironically, it's the same fear the Thessalonians had that Paul was writing into. And in fact, this is, this is um, no, Paul is not saying this at all. In fact, what Paul will argue is that when you die, those who are in Christ will go straight to heaven. Here's how he puts it in that letter. He says, we believe Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus, those who have, translate, died in him. So if Christ is coming back with dead people, doesn't it kind of imply that they're with him already? And just in case you missed that, he goes, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we are still alive when, when Christ comes again. We who are left till the coming of the Lord, we're not, we're not preceding those who have fallen asleep because they're with him already. And Paul says encourage people with these words. He says it's because of this, this, this idea that we don't grieve like people who have no hope. That God has almost given us a double gift. A promise of life after death that when we die we get to be with him. But the greater promise of life after life after death when we will then someday be raised with him. And if you've wrestled with some of this from last week, or even at any time you've heard it taught here, I, I got good news for you. You're, you're not alone because they were wrestling with it too, and Paul was there firsthand trying to explain it. And it's actually the same issue, which is what Second Thessalonians is all about. And that's what we're going to unpack today. Paul trying to clear up some of the misconceptions of what this hope actually is and what it means for us in life today. Now, I want to start, I want to show you an email I got recently to kind of frame this. It's from my, uh, my pastor growing up. Now, um, his name is Mark, and... He was my pastor probably from the time I was in seventh grade up until I left that church to go to seminary and, and, and then take a church of my own. And around 2000 or 2001, he stepped down from his position, he stepped down from his call to go into full-time stewardship work because he found that he had a gift of, of helping churches learn how to do the, the money thing in a healthy, non-weird kind of way. Does that make sense? And, and, and let me just tell you, that is a a huge missing thing in, in many churches today. He sent me this email, and I want to share it with you today. He writes this. It's me, Reverend Mark, 
I really don't mean to inconvenience you right now. I made a little trip to Scotland and misplaced my wallet that contains my passport and credit cards. Just hearing from me like this sounds a little odd, right? It does, doesn't it? But it all happened very fast. I've just been issued a temporary passport and also my ticket, but I'm short of funds to pay for the bills here. I've also been trying to reach my credit card company, but from the message I just received, I'll need some verifications like answering my home phone, and, and that will only happen when I'm home, and we just feel for them, don't we? Please, can you lend me some funds to secure my bills? I'll be willing to pay you back as soon as I return. Please respond as soon as you get this message so I can forward my details to send the money via Western Union or MoneyGram. You can also contact me via the hotel's phone. And look, it's just so easy. I mean, he gave me all the information right there. Looking forward to your response, Reverend Mark Bussert, stewardship for you. The address is accurate. The phone number is accurate. Man, don't you just feel for a minute of time like that? You ever get an email like this? Or maybe one from Nigeria? <laughs> right? This is what 2 Thessalonians is about. See, I, uh, I actually emailed him back. I emailed him back and I said, hey, you know, I, I hope you're enjoying Scotland, but you might want to check. You may have been hacked, right? And he emails back right away, yeah, I know, and they got a hold of my entire contact book, and by the way, I'm not in Scotland, right? This is what 2 Thessalonians is all about. Look at what Paul writes in the middle of this letter. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to become what? Unsettled? Alarmed? Right? By some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying what? The day of the Lord is already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in this way. For that day will not come until, well, a couple things happen first. The rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. See, it seems that what was happening is that Paul came and taught about this, this amazing hope at the day when Christ was going to return and the hope that it gives us now that those who are in Christ get to go and be with him forever. And I wonder what was going through the Thessalonian mind back then. I wonder what people started to pick up on, how they started to explain it, how they started to teach it. Who started to speak in Paul's name going, you know what Paul really meant was this. Maybe ideas like, well, well Jesus came, didn't he? Jesus came, so that must have been the day. Jesus came, so this must be the totality of the hope and promise we have. The day has come. And maybe people translated it to go, well, yeah, so maybe, maybe the hope is death. Maybe the hope is we wait now, the day has come, so when we die, we just go to be to heaven, and that's the goal right there, making it there, as though this, this thing called death in heaven is the sum total of all we have in him. And I wonder what it started to do to the Thessalonian psyche how that started to affect them. How does it affect you if life is nothing more than a waiting room? A waiting room to just get on with it and stay out of harm's way? 
until your number comes up. What does it do if you look at the sum total of your life and go, this is what God promised to me? How do you react? How do you live? This is what was going on in the Thessalonian mind. And Paul goes, wait a minute, don't, don't go falling victim to some 419 fishing scam here. You, you, you know? Do not be alarmed or unsettled. Let me explain this out. Let me tell you, God has made you a promise that even though when you die, you get to go with, be with him, there is still a greater day to come when Christ will return. The dead will be raised and then you'll really be with him in ways you can never dream. And he gives two signs that it's future and not present. Two ways he kind of goes, here's how you know this hasn't happened yet. He says, don't let anyone deceive you because it won't come until what? The rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness or depending on your translation, sin is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. This day won't come till those things happen first. Which automatically begs the question, doesn't it? I mean, you're sitting there wondering, so like, what, what is this rebellion that you're talking about? Who is this man of lawlessness, right? Because if you know the day's not going to come till he's going to come, you kind of want to know who they are. Are you with me? Okay, you know what the problem is? I got any clue who they are or what it is. And neither does anyone else who writes about this. Some will say, oh, it's the Antichrist. Okay, great, it's the Antichrist. Who's the Antichrist? The man of lawlessness. Right, does that help? We don't know. We don't know. But they did. And that's what matters. I like what Paul has to say to them. He writes this. After explaining this whole thing, he goes, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? Like, duh, guys. If only we know too. But we don't. And that's okay. Because they did. And for them, it was the sign, the evidence, the whatever you want to call it, to the central point that we still have today, that Christ is still to come again. The day is not now. The day is not yesterday. The day is in the future. Hope is still coming. Are you with me? And this wraps it around to what Paul really has to say. He says, in light of this, well, let me sum it up this way. Stand firm. Stand firm. Stand firm and hold on to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter, not by spam. Stand firm and hold on to what we taught you. And you know why? Because what you believe matters. See, these teachings and these beliefs 
these doctrines of Christianity, they're not an academic exercise. Because what you believe affects how you think and live. You can read this, and I encourage you to do so in 2 Thessalonians, that for them, they thought the day had come. Great, what does this mean? Some sat around and wait. Paul called them idlers. What's the bother of doing anything? Why does it matter if, if the day is here and it's all just going to come anyway? Why bother at all? Some found themselves in despair. If this is the best that we have to hope for, what is the point to begin with? And some of you inside, amen, right? What you think determines what you feel and how you live. And the entire letter of 2 Thessalonians is Paul trying to reorient them to that hope that is to come. In the meantime, stand firm. Because the promises ain't here yet. Stand firm. Jesus is coming again. Stand firm. God has not forgotten. The day of the Lord is still at hand. Stand firm. Because that hope that he said so often before makes holiness worthwhile. And it should mean everything for the way we live. I want to share this one quote with you. It comes from this, uh, this one theologian. His name is Michael Gorman. And I love what he has to say. He says, for many Christians, the death of Christ remains a transaction between God and humanity in, what Christ, in which Christ is a willing but largely passive figure. Right? There's a debt to be paid. Christ goes, Okay, the financial transaction takes place. In such a scenario, Christ's cross does not define either his or our humanity. It is the debit card and nothing more. The cross is seen as the source of our salvation, but not as the shape of it. For Paul, however, Christ's cross is both the source and the shape of our salvation. When we respond to the gospel, we embrace the cross not only as a gift, but also as a demand. To borrow the language of Jesus, we take up the cross, beginning a life that can be best described as, and I love that word, don't you? Cruciform. Cross-shaped. Our devotion to God, our love for others, and our hope for the future are all grounded and shaped by the cross. In such a cruciform spirituality, sacrifice, difficulty, and suffering are not to be seen as intruders, but part and parcel of the arrangement, sustained by the presence of the Spirit as the foretaste and guarantee of a future resurrection similar to Christ's cruciform. That's really what it is. Stand firm, Paul writes. Because to be a follower of Jesus is to take up your cross and follow him. It's not going out looking for trouble. It's not being eager or hungry for persecution. It's just inevitable, Paul will say. To be in Christ 
means in this side of eternity, hardship, trouble, persecution, pain. If you are in Christ, you are a part of him. He suffers. You will suffer. He dies. You have died. But he has risen. And you will rise too. And it's that call to endurance, holiness, cruciformity that is so central to what Paul has to say to those early believers, to what these letters are about and to us today. Are you struggling? Are you struggling? Struggling, hurting, suffering, seeking the way of goodness and integrity, courage and faith, Got news for you. You stand in a long stream of believers like you for over 2,000 years. Hear what Paul writes to you. Stand firm. Hang in there. Be holy. Because there is a hope. And it'll make it all worthwhile. And so we come and we pray. I'd like to invite you to your feet. How cross-shaped is your life today? Mine is often not cross-shaped enough. Jesus invites us, invites us to personally come to him, to confess our sins, to grab hold of him in faith. I invite you to do that with me today. Most merciful God, we confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean. We have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We justly deserve your present and eternal punishment. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us, forgive us, renew us, and lead us so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. Amen. Last week, we started looking at a passage from Galatians, another early letter of Paul, where he talks about what it means to be in Christ and this, this hope and holiness and 
cruciformity that comes in him. Look at what he writes to them. He says, for through the law, you died to the law so that you might live for God. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I want to invite you to make those your words today. We confessed, and the scriptures say God is faithful and just, that he forgives our sins, that he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. For those of us in Christ, this is what he says is true of you. Pray with me right now. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take and eat. This is my body, and it's given for you. Come, do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took a cup, and he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, and he said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant. It's shed for you for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Come and do this in remembrance of me. Welcome to the table of the Lord. Have a seat.